It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. A couple weeks ago, I spoke with a music critic about how algorithms are changing the way we find new music, or maybe how new music finds us. And a couple people reached out to suggest that one person who's been thinking about similar questions is Tom Vanderbilt, who just wrote a book called You May Also Like, Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. It's kind of the flip side of the conversation. Algorithms can bring us all sorts of new things we may like, but crafting your taste is all about narrowing things down. Tom Vanderbilt's book has an illustration of an ice cream cone on the cover. When you go to the Amazon page for the book, there's a note. It says, product alert. Book will have either a blue cover with chocolate ice cream or a red cover with vanilla ice cream. Color is not selectable. This struck me as sort of a weird restriction for a book that's all about personal preference. So I started by asking Tom Vanderbilt if this was an intentional move on his part to eliminate choice. But actually, he was trying to do the opposite. He wanted to give people options in terms of the cover as sort of a social experiment. But it turns out that plan kind of backfired. Amazon does not have it in their capability to offer two books of <laughs> uh, two, two different covers of the same book. It gets into the, the SKUs and there's only one ISBN per SKU. And, you know, I, I was sort of wondering if the, if the robots couldn't, like, distinguish between red and blue on the warehouse shelves as they were picking right. up. But, I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no product difference. It's wh- where is that preference going to come from? Pe- people may just sort of flip a coin and pick what looks best to them in the moment and then sort of justify the decision afterwards. So it just occurs to me that, you know, what's your favorite color? It must be one of the earliest ways that we really plant a flag taste-wise. I mean, I remember as a kid going through that process of being like, what's my favorite color going to be and what am I going to say about it? And then measuring that against what color am I naturally attracted to? And that is something that you really return to over and over, which is this notion of taste is something that you just, you find what you like and then taste is something that's a statement. Yeah, and, and my daughter, you mentioned kids. I mean, she was bringing home pages of, of homework in her from her workbooks that had just lists of favorite things on them, and their, their whole task was to you know favorite food. And this is a, like a amazing very, homework. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it's a very convulsive age. She's where, a junior in high school. Yeah, no. yeah exactly. So, um, no, um, you know, very convulsive period of where people are. You know, a lot of this stuff is in flux, and they don't really know. They don't. You know, their long term identity is not you know, very much in flux. So they're, they're looking for quick, easy tokens of identity, something to both put them in line with what their friends might like, yet also distinguish them a little bit. And this is something I go back to in the book. Uh, it's been called conformist distinction by psychologists. Basically, you know, we all want to be like each other more or less, but with just a little twist. And and when we agree that we like something, even we, we might try to add that little twist. So if we, we both say we love the Beatles you say you like Paul, I might say that I like John. You know, we both like the Yankees, you like this player more. You know, it, it, it seems weird to us to just to use a weird example. If, if your neighbor buys a new car, he buys a 2016 red Honda Fit. I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. For you to that, even if you love that car, I mean, for you to go out and buy the exact same car is going to just seem a little odd. You know, you might, you're going to have to at least get a different color. Even the, even the same brand just might be weird because, you know, we, we learn from each other socially, but we need to distinguish ourselves as well. And I think a lot of taste difference uh, is often driven by that dynamic. 
I, as you were talking, I found a lyric by this band that I used to listen to that just popped in my head. This band's called King Missile, but they have this line, I want to be different like everybody else I want to be like. I want to be just like all the different people. And that's a, kind of exactly what you're going for. Which speaks to another finding, which is that if you look at subcultures, uh, the stronger the subculture differentiates themselves from the mainstream, the more robust those conformist norms are within the subculture. Mm. So, and you, you, you know, we've all sort of seen this. You kind of know what a prototypical punk rocker from the late 1970s looks like with the mohawk and the flannel shirt and the the, the, the safety pins and. And at some point, that becomes the dominant enough culture that another subculture breaks away. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess once it reaches a certain critical mass, you can then achieve differentiation. I mean, it it, it loses its power as a subculture unto itself, and then it fragments into other subcultures. And I think, I mean, just if we can segue into music, I mean, this is Mm -hmm. something that happens very often with music vis-a-vis not only the forms of music, but the people who follow that music. And in the book, I spent time with the, the Echo Nest, which is a music intelligence firm out of Boston that, that was purchased by Spotify. And one of the, one project they have, which is sort of a fun project called Every Noise at Once, mapping musical genre in the world, both uh, sort of by sound analysis and also linguistic analysis of what people say about it, because those are two different things. So mm-hmm. they're up to 1,436 genres of music in the world. Um, you know, back in the day, if you went to the record store <laughs> at your mall, there were probably six genres of music, right? Uh, jazz, rock, R&B. Um, but, uh, you know, the reason I say you, you have to sort of do both of those forms of analyses, analyses the sound and the content, is that uh, the engineer, for example, pointed out that if you take two genres one is uh, vegan straight edge punk the other is hate core um, <laughs> musically huge you know not uh, these, are, these are these are marginal genres right but but musically they sound very similar a computer could probably not tell them apart reliably but if you look at the content of the lyrics and the types of people who follow each of those forms of music you'll get a very different uh, sort of thing going on there write about this this categorical perception right i think is what you what you call it and that we want to have categories as shorthand to fit something when we find it so we're not really evaluating a song or any sort of discrete object that we encounter as on its own merits because that would be too hard to kind of start from scratch every time we encounter something and decide whether we like it or not we're kind of trying to as quickly as possible fit it into what we think of as our taste yeah, I think there's been a lot of uh, interesting work coming along in, in what's sort of been called the predictive brain, that, you know, the brain is sort of this inference-generating machine that you walk down the street, you're kind of, you're sending out a model of what you think is happening and why it's happening, what's going to happen, and then you then, you know, compare and contrast the actual results of that. So, you know, a, a lot of stuff that comes to us comes essentially pre-sold. It's sort of wrapped in some uh, kind of packaging, like a genre, that that immediately cues you into how you're going to think about that and so this you know and there have been many artists that have tried to get away from these confines with often lesser success uh, you know and, and someone like prince was very, was very uh, cognizant of this and and from the beginning told his record company he did not want to be an r&b artist he wanted to be a pop artist because a lot of the music he was making really did not mm-hmm. 
fit into that, nor did he want it to fit into that. But yeah, I, I use the example, you know, if you look at a rain, uh, psychologists talk about categorical perception and, and a rainbow, that it's easier, easier for us to see bands of color than it is to distinguish among different frequencies within the same color. So uh, how to describe this, you know, one point of green, the far left of green is over here, the far right of green is over here. That's, that's, let's say five clicks apart. Then there's a part of green that segues into red. That's also five clicks apart. But that second thing is going to be much easier for us to see. It's easier for us to see red turning to green than differences within green, even though mathematically it's the same. Meaning we think of a rainbow as like a bunch of colors stacked on top of each other as opposed to one full gradient all the way from Roy G through Viv. (laughs) And, you know, I think music, the same thing could happen where you could have a country song that is just basically almost on the edge of rock yet because it gets put into the category of country we then lump it together mentally with country songs and and because they're in that same category they become more alike in our mind than they would be if we could somehow just look at them uh, neutrally and so i mean i think i I talked to tim westergren at pandora in the book and he early on he wanted to run a service where no information at all would be shown about what was playing you would just get because categorization and and you know, prejudgment of what we're hearing was huge in his mind. It, it, it kept people from, and I'm as guilty as this as anyone of having you know certain genres that I don't think I like. It's but he a, was saying a, an algorithm can be totally dispassionate and just serve you a song that you bring no preconceptions to it. And so if this Justin Bieber song sounds like Smokey Robinson, then you will like it because, and you don't need to know that it's Justin Bieber. Yeah, I mean they were trying to do it, you know, mu- uh, using musicological terms. So they would they would try to link two songs up because. You know, on paper, musicologically, they were the same. Some people would just see the name of the artist or the genre. I mean, there's an example of uh, on a Beatles station, uh, a Bee Gees song pops up called, I think, Lemons Never Forget, mm-hmm. uh, which a lot of people have a strong mental model of the Bee Gees as a disco act. So they would think, why are you playing me this Bee Gees song? When, it, when in fact, you know, on paper, in your ear, it sounds very Beatlesque. And how do people react to that? I think often negatively, and, and there's you know there's there's a lot of thumbing behavior to indicate that. And if if you look at Pandora now, they when you start a new station, they are very careful to to spell out exactly why they're playing what they're playing for you with with all kinds of musicological terms like major key tonality and breathy male lead vocalist. And then the next song comes up, they'll walk you through to that because otherwise there's a strong reaction. Why are you playing me this song? In fact, I went to Pandora partially because I was listening to. A new order station and the song jump around by house of pain came up and i I was sort of thinking well you know in what universe and i I began to imagine a universe of just sort of danceable kind of hits of a sort but in you know by another frame of mind you have sort of an english you know synthesizer driven uh post new wave act and then you know in boston irish hip-hop whatever whatever other things you want to put house of pain but uh I never did get a full answer on that, by the way. But do you like that? I mean, how does that make you feel as someone who thinks about taste that we so often revert to these categories and potentially close ourselves off to new experiences or thinking of a Bee Gees, you know, evaluating a Bee Gees song fairly? I just think you know we're, we're optimizers. At the end of the day, we we do all sorts of things. Um, in my in my last book, I talked a lot about pedestrian behavior. Pedestrians just optimize. If you build 
them a sidewalk that's in the right place, they will continue to walk through the grass because they don't like where that sidewalk is. So, you know, given a choice of goods in the world, we're going to necessarily almost fall back on what is familiar. And, and the, the, the suggestion has been made with in terms of food and evolutionary biology, you know, what is familiar is what did not kill you yesterday. So, you know, that that's a that feeling of safety is very powerful. And what is familiar to me music-wise is a lot of stuff from my late teens, early 20s that, that I enjoyed it then. I still enjoy it now. Yes, there's been a lot of new stuff that's come out. Is it worth the massive investment of my time as a 40-something busy working parent to track down every new indie band that might sound, you know, no, probably not. Is that unfair? Yes. But, um, you know, I'm not saying we should all just, you know, retreat into our little cubby holes of, uh, of, of taste, but it is, I, I can see the logic and why it happens. And, and this is where, you know, people talk about these services as a, really a filter bubble sort of thing. But in some ways I, I think they have much more promise than that. And I've really been, I mean, Tim Westergren joked to me that he, he, his goal was to allow the lazy middle-aged man to get back in the game of having stuff brought to you that you didn't have time to go out and really hunt down yourself. So using hopefully a, a, you know, a, a way that actually brought you new things and didn't just sort of lazily circle around, hey, it's a Beatles station. Now we're going to play George Harrison. Now we're going back to the Beatles. And, you know, that, right. which we've all experienced. So to take a step back, and you just hinted at it, but you kind of try on in this book a bunch of different definitions of taste, right? And is that kind of where you landed? Like it's a sorting mechanism? It's a path towards efficiency? What are the other... I think just most crudely from a personal point of view, obviously there's a massive social component. I mean, I, yeah, to try to break down taste, it's a very complex thing. It's It gets into some things, some questions of inherent human biological preference. It gets into family, cultural upbringing, surroundings, what you've been exposed to. It gets into other sorts of social distinction mechanisms, and often those things are all confounding one another, so you don't know you know, sort of where to begin. Um, and just to take color, for example, I thought, well, if blue is the most popular, maybe we're just born liking blue. And we've all sort of heard a, a variation on this research that you know, certain colors are kind of hit the, 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 the spectrum of our, 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 you know, our friendlier to our eye. We have some sort of preference for this. Um, so, I mean, the, the complication with the idea that we're born liking blue is that Stephen Palmer, who's studied color preference at UC Berkeley, who I talk a lot about in the book, he's done studies where they, you know, sort of try to query infants on their color preferences <laughs> using um, not, Baby polling, sign language? not polling data, but um, they just hold up color cards and whatever infants look at the longest, they they use looking as a kind uh -huh. of proxy for liking. Um, so infants, it turns out, are drawn to the yellowish, brownish spectrum of colors much more so than blue. Those are the, weirdly the same colors that adults are least predisposed towards. So there's some kind of – so clearly it's not biological and there's some other kind of learning mechanism that goes on uh, through life. So it's not to say there's never a biological uh, explanation. It's just – even color preference, I mean the, 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 the science here is, is hardly solved. We'll get back to our conversation with Tom Vanderbilt in a minute. But first – What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux. The Black Tux is the best way to get quality crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos for any wedding or special event rented to you right online. You can get a suit just for you or for a whole group if you're one of the lucky ones who got stuck having to organize a wedding party this summer. 
All you have to do is visit theblacktux.com and select from complete looks or build your own piece by piece. And this process is actually really neat. After you pick out your style, you then get to design the perfect fit. Of course, you can go and enter your measurements as numbers, but if you're like me and you're not really sure what your measurements are, there's a guide to help you measure yourself. And it's not just the raw numbers. You can describe your build, your shoulders, your chest, your stomach, and how you prefer your fit. There's even a phone number that you can call to talk to an actual human being who can give you advice on fit and style. Like I said, it's kind of fun. It's like playing dress up, but for real. After you've built your outfit, your suit will arrive a week before your event. When you're all done, you just put the suit back in the box and ship it for free back to the Black Tux. So check it out. At the very least, go and play around with the suit fit generator tool thingy. Visit theblacktux.com slash point. Make sure you enter theblacktux.com slash point so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. So you mentioned the the biologist, the evolutionary biologist, and the Pandora folks. I mean, who else? Give us a sense. Who else is out there trying to solve this question? What other fields are trying to figure out taste? Well, obviously, you know, uh, corporate America. I mean, I mean, I mean, global capitalism um, uh, trying to not only figure out taste, but to manipulate taste, to shape taste, um, to create new tastes. Um, this was. You know, I spent time at, at McCormick, for example, which is the flavoring giant, and they also are involved in a lot of things in the grocery store. But um, to, to go there and see the sheer range of new flavors that are being worked on, you sort of think like, hey, aren't there enough great flavors in the world already? These things, you know, your strawberries, you're looking at the book cover, your chocolates, your vanillas. But, you know, I mean, people come to them wanting a new flavor, you know, to – create product differentiation and help sell more things and that's interesting because that's that's actually a process that involves like both definitions of taste right i mean are they thinking of that as like an actual taste in terms of like how the flavors hit your tongue or are they thinking that as a taste as a social construction of like you know super hot cheetos are going to be the new thing or whatever Um, probably much more the former i would say i mean i mean food we we do get a lot of our food cues from other people, but it's not quite as wrapped up in prestige. Although although it is really, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of what what Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, would call you know distinction going on. People trying to eke out cultural capital by simply what's in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. If you go, you know, one person's refrigerator has um, you know a certain kind of beer, another person has another kind of beer. I mean, there's there's you know, in some ways, certain statements being there, especially especially where I live in in Brooklyn. I mean, to, yes. <laughs> to I mean, to walk into a a coffee store nowadays, a, co- a coffee shop, you know, is to experience. I mean, to talk about endless choice. I mean, this is something where coffee, once treated as sort of a more or less everyday good, not subject to much differentiation. You had, you know, there was a certain range there, but now, I mean, there's. You almost feel like there's kind of a, a correct choice often to be made in choosing a beverage that is not entirely to do with the way it tastes. And, you know, I, I mean, last year was sort of nitro cold brew was the new thing that came along. I, I had to go quickly Google to see what that actually was because I didn't know. And it has that, bubbles in it. Yeah. That made me feeling, you know, my, I felt like my cultural capital was called into question. So I had to sort of ramp up. I mean, do I like it? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting drink. But, um, but so, there, so there are two things going on there. Do you see that as bullshit or do you see that as like well this is who we are and how we define ourselves and how we sort of send signals to each other as social creatures and it's fine if you put your foot down for nitro as opposed to regular cold brew 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's it's both. I mean, the, the, there's an expression, the first taste is with the eyes. I mean, I think really the first taste is with the brain. I mean, we we just walk around with a lot of top-down expectation built into, you know, how, how we're even going to approach something, how we like about something. There was an interesting case done of a, on Instagram. Some artists created a artisanal restaurant that was going to open in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and they very carefully crafted campaign with just the right photographs of of the cutlery of the of the chalkboard menu of of the kind of descriptions of kale that were going on there and it was entirely fictional they were mm-hmm. just and of course people showed up for opening day but their whole point was that you just had to present enough of the trappings of this thing where people were already buying into it before they even knew whether it was any good um so that just yeah you know i think about that when i go to restaurants all the time it's like if i was eating this at home i could probably make this at home but the the context in which i'm eating it really matters right and so and that goes into my taste the way that i taste it the way that i experience it and this is something that's only become more complicated in this era of of yelp and and the like i mean Mm -hmm. you used to go to a restaurant maybe you had read one review in the new york times or some food magazine or maybe a friend told you about it now you can have five six hundred seven hundred reviews i don't know of anyone who actually reads that many but i mean just to try to make an analysis here of of a restaurant i i try to go with the aggregate i think most people do but this raises a question you know if you can get some sort of peak end effects here where if you if you read three reviews the fourth one you read says well there was a guess what there was a cockroach in my meal i mean this four and a half star restaurant you might have just the the kind of the disgust factor raised that's what's sticking in your mind so uh, you know i mean these (laughs) and those reviews have a lot of things going on in and of themselves all sorts of forms of hidden biases and um whether they're actually true or not i mean people make a lot of big deal about fraudulent reviews but that the problem with that is it sort of it sort of leaves open the question of the reviews that are quote unquote true that those are somehow wholly objective which of yeah. course is nothing you know nothing can be yeah my sense truth, when i go on yelp is that i try and write the story of what the experience was that led to that review you know and i feel like so often it's just like one little thing went wrong often with service which is important or like maybe someone was a little rude or whatever and then it sort of spirals out into the super long review and it colors the entire experience and so maybe that's valid but like you can almost always in a bad yelp review sort of decipher the like little trigger moment (laughs) and say okay yeah okay this was a little cold or they had to wait 15 minutes but then all of a sudden the whole thing was corrupted Exactly. I mean, I think in the same way that people in focus groups are hesitant to assign a one or a ten to a, a one mm-hmm. or a nine, excuse me, to a to a product because they almost feel it's too extreme. I think a lot of us reading these reviews often see a one or a five star review on Yelp or Amazon as on the five either planted by friends or, or whoever, or or just not. The person wasn't didn't have enough of a judgment. He just sort of you know they kind of treated it as a big thumbs up five. The one, as you say, yeah, there's a hidden story going on there. Um, with my own book and previous books on Amazon, I've been a little dismayed upon reading a one-star review to see what the person is actually angry with is the fact that Amazon messed up the shipping. Uh-huh. And so my review as sure. an author suffers by clearly because I've been wrapped up in Amazon's you know, bad service in that regard. So. Um, going back to this question of taste as – you know, on private thing that you have um, that comes from within you and then taste as a as like public performance, you know, something that you show to other people. Uh, you write about how algorithms and data kind of 
have revealed an interesting discrepancy there, which is like in public we like to talk about, let's say we watch RD documentaries and then our Netflix Q shows that like we actually never watch those movies. We just watch the dumb comedies. Uh, and so is data really kind of helping us understand how people had that discrepancy between public taste and private taste? Absolutely, because I mean, I mean, sociologists who were the ones really studying this before, or, or marketing people, you know, they, you had to ask someone, and that always, you know, people will give often the answer they think the person wants to hear, or they give an aspirational answer, and this comes up in, in you know, obviously in politics with polling, mm-hmm. that sort of this is where the silent majority comes from, or, or uh, and. With Netflix, especially now that you have uh, on time, uh, excuse me, on demand, real time streaming, where you, you know it's people's implicit behavior is becoming revealed very clearly. Not it's not what they their carefully chosen cue and their carefully chosen taste profile and, and the stars they've given there. Um, Last FM had a kind of a funny thing for a while. It was it was a most quickly deleted uh, song playlist that the things that people had had you know scrabbled or whatever that whatever that term was and then gotten rid of so something they wanted to listen to once quick hit and then not be associated with it sort of a guilty pleasure uh-huh. list so i think you know that that happens all the time with these sorts of you have sort of a public face even if it's not really public i think you, you, there's a bit of personal storytelling going on there we all we all aspire to be someone that we're not at least you know to varying degrees and it happens in food as much as you know music there's the ideal food we think we should eat so and i i want to get the netflix i've been trying to get the netflix folks in here for a long time to ask them about this but do you have any sense of whether they and others who are doing this kind of algorithmic recommendation and have this sort of power to present you with recommendations in this way are trying to create taste in any way i mean i'm convinced that my netflix still is holding out hope that i will watch like the arty black and white documentary and it still shows up on the front screen every time i go in even though i keep watching you know pretty pretty mindless stuff i mean i would say i would say not even even though i mentioned pandora before how i mean one of the reasons tim westergren said he started pandora was because he, he there were artists he liked he, he, who he felt their career was in some way suffering because they were having trouble finding the audience that would like them because the traditional channels were blocked to them or, again, because of this idea that you know people's pre-existing prejudices wouldn't allow them to like what they might actually uh, like. But when I actually went to go to talk to Pandora, they my initial discussion with the media relations people was I said I'm working on a book about taste. And they said, well, that's great, but we just want you to know that we, are, we do not consider ourselves taste Makers. I mean, because all of these services are basically trying to just promote engagement, get people to stay on, stay on the on the service. It's mm-hmm. it's like, and I think, you know, Netflix even nowadays, now that it's shifted to the streaming, uses techniques that are not dissimilar to Las Vegas slot machines um, in terms of the window opening for the next program as you're watching the current program. I mean, that, that's not that's pretty simple, you know, sort of human behavior. Eliminate the friction. Just keep someone on and give them a little teaser of what's coming next. Uh, but I haven't seen any strong cases where they're really trying to push something that, you know, would be so far afield. Of- but do you think that's even possible? I mean, do you think it's possible to sort of actively change someone's taste? I, well, I think so because they – I mean simply by – they've been doing a lot of A-B testing and simply by rearranging the order of the rows, that that first page that pops up or which DVD covers appear in which row and even the artwork in those DVD covers, 
changes the click-through rate mm-hmm. on that. So this is just, I mean, and this is kind of the internet in a nutshell nowadays. It's it's like life is a focus group. There's always some A-B test going on beneath the surface that you don't even know about. Um, I mean, simply entering a, a Google search almost opens a secret window onto other people's taste that you're not sure you might have thought no one was actually into until you tried to type in a search phrase and this hidden world of taste was right. i mean what, what's the expression you know if, if 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 you can think of it you can find it on the internet yes that there is such a thing as hate watching or like hate hate liking something yeah what, you know, what the term's very interesting i i do think that the, the signal coming in you know takes a while to be processed as it goes up the brain and you know it may fall to one side or the other and it may take longer for some things to resolve i mean the, the old expression there's a thin line between love and hate uh, you know some fmri research actually sort of backs that up in a way in which it's you know showing people very positive hedonic images illuminates some lights up some of the same areas as showing them things they actually dislike and i I know neurological research is very sloppy and you can't draw too much from that but there's it's a real struggle to find language to describe this because when you say something like hate watching or a mix of pain and pleasure you could also just as easily say well look if you're watching it and you're committed to it and you consistently go back and do the same things over and over you just that just means you like it you don't hate like it you just like it right because you're doing it yeah and 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 you know then the whole idea of you know guilty pleasure i mean which i think you know comes more from a societal point of view because if if we didn't know what other people thought why why would we feel guilty about something and i i really think guilty pleasure is almost a secret password we give each other to kind of test out whether someone Mm -hmm. else also liked something you know well it's like dipping a toe into yeah it's like it's like a poker bluff in a way you're sort of saying well yeah, this is just a guilty pleasure watch for me. But boy, did I watch! Did I enjoy that show? Um, just in case the other person oh, that's interesting reveals yeah. the wrong a different hand. Um, but did you come up with any rules or sort of basic notions of like how we can talk about taste and what we like and why we like stuff in a more effective way? It's a, it's a good question. It's a tricky one. And, and on the one hand, you know, in some ways, I think we don't need that much language. You know, there. I mean, I, I mentioned the book Wit- Wittgenstein. The philosopher came up with in one of his books. He has sort of an early mention of what would be thought of today as emoji. I mean, he thought, you know, because we struggle with language so much, it might be simpler to just replace language with simple little happy face symbols, and maybe that's good enough to express this thing that's actually pretty complicated. One thing I was curious to me, though, is that talking to people like sensory analysts, people who are paid to, to, to consume food, and they're really more interested in the properties of that food, what flavors are in it. But they told me that, you know, I said, do you ever kind of think about whether you like it or dislike it as, as you are doing it? And they said, you know, you can't even ask someone that because just that mere concept, liking or disliking, will throw off the whole mm-hmm. sensory experience. So it just speaks, again, to how much... If we go into a museum exhibit expecting to like it, how how much that has already kind of greased the wheels of our of our future liking, and just how much again we've made that predictive bet that we think we're going to like it, and um, so th- I've tried to. The one thing I've walked away with in the book is really trying to examine and harshly interrogate my own dislikes because I think that's 
almost the more interesting part of the question when we're really optimized as humans to be able to like anything in terms of food and living in different environments. We're very adaptable. Why a dislike should even emerge at all um, for a type of music or... So, <laughs> so what'd you what'd you learn? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is just you know, again, it's a filtering mechanism. We need to. I think we we feel like we need to filter some things out to make life simpler. And right, we're defining what we like by defining it against something we don't like in a way. Yeah, and and just uh, just by sheer habit, we have we kind of you know do the same things, and often there is a social thing going on there. We we say we don't like a certain form of music or perhaps a musical act but what we might really saying is we don't like the people who like that when you were talking about the trouble with defining taste and talking about taste i thought of something my friend my best friend says all the time and he's no wittgenstein but he has this phrase where he where he just goes music's tight which is like whenever i am struggling to like describe something that i really love and like get across that like I, it means the world to me and I'm just obsessed and it hits me in all the right ways and it, and it teases out all these emotions. He'll just stop and go, yeah, we get it. You know, music's tight. Or, or sometimes he'll say sunsets are tight. Like, yeah. And it's just this great shorthand. It's not dismissive. It's like, I understand, you know, the way that you feel about this thing you're trying to describe and struggling to describe is the way that I feel about the things that I love and I get it and I acknowledge that and we don't have to like go round and round and round trying to describe why you love this song so much. But I, I think of that all the time. Just, yeah, music's tight. Yeah, and, and you see the same thing on, on Facebook or Instagram. Someone puts up a, a picture of a cute baby. You know, you don't necessarily have to write a, a sort of paragraph treatise about the, the aesthetics of that, why it's pleasant <laughs> to you. You can just throw up a, a smiley face. and yeah, It kind of lets you off the hook a little bit, it's right? It's the music's tight of, of baby uh, images. Yeah, I mean, this... T- because it just gives you kind of a little uh, almost pre-cognitive um, kind of good feeling. And, and that leads to just one other point here is that, you know, a lot of the ways we feel about things, we, we had to learn to develop that machinery before we even had language. I mean, so back before we had language and we were just, you know, beginning to uh, – develop in societies our faces are filled mm-hmm. with you know very strong preverbal signals of liking or disliking and you know so that's where even before we had language we had we had our own smiley faces we we were we were human emoji to, to put it in a certain way and it just leads to one other point here which is thinking of to take it back to book covers um there's a dutch graphic designer who created this book i love and it's called um it's a project he did the cover that judges you he put a camera in the cover of a book and hooked it up to some uh, facial recognition software. And if that camera detects any trace of judgment on your face, either positive or negative, the book will not open. If it detects <laughs> that you are neutral, the book pops open because it, it has determined that you are ready to absorb that book in, in a you know you know open minded way. And he did the whole project because he. he he thought he was cutting himself off from potential moments of you know wonder and discovery by by this prejudicial. But was the book any good? What's inside the book? I'm not sure. I, oh, it never I was, opened for you. You're too judgmental. <laughs> and I should just say that I don't I don't care if people look at my book with hostility as long as they buy it. So, yes, yeah. yes, and it doesn't matter whether it's red or 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 blue. Um, so to wrap up, your previous book you mentioned it briefly, but your previous book was about traffic, and I'm somewhat obsessed with traffic because I kind of like to think of it as like almost an unsolvable problem because it's like everyone's 
individual quirks just piled up on top of each other. You know, it's not that one main thing has gone wrong. Often traffic just appears for no reason because it's just a bunch of little things that are ineffable and you can't sort of categorize or, or calculate and then they just all of a sudden add, compound and compound. And so I kind of like that. Am I am I right? And also does your work with traffic at all intersect with your work with, with taste? Um, yeah, it's a good point. I think you are sort of right in a way because, I mean, they have looked at other forms of transportation organization. One of the famous examples is ant colony optimization mm-hmm. and, you know, ants – not being individuals are working entirely for the benefit of the colony or the queen so they can optimize these traffic flows that are quite spectacular to watch. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will probably have seen these on, on YouTube. And if we were all somehow working for this benefit of New York City, we could probably arrange some other commute in which some people would suffer a bit more, but the larger population would benefit. And of course, that does not happen at all. And <laughs> individuals are individuals. So I guess, the, yeah. It, the benefit of that is, yes, we are humans. We we, we are not ants. Um, the negative part is that we all are suffer. stuck in traffic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but does this work connect at all? I mean, you know, you're allowed to just shift gears and go write a new book entirely. But do you think of these at all as part of the same, trying to answer similar questions? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I, don't, I don't know if wicked problems is the right word here. But, but yeah, I mean, things that people have been trying to grapple with for a long time and that are at the end of the day – are a mixture of, of social, physical factors that those things are always hard to tease out. Um, probably equally controversial and, and yeah, unknowable. I mean, the, the, the expression, there's no accounting for taste. I mean, there's really no accounting for why a lot, so many people drive in single occupancy vehicles into New York City every day and create this massive pileup. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so yeah, I, I can't think of any strong, you know, parallels other than that, other than a heavy, hefty dose of applied psychology at work. Um, but I mean, the, the one thing, kind of from a, just a data algorithmic point of view, that does occur to me is that we, you know, are often not the best optimizers of our own behavior. And I, I do think, you know, as bad of a rap as kind of algorithms and these recommendation sites can get, I think there is a value. I mean. I recently interviewed the folks at Waze, the driving app, and if you you analyze people's commuting behavior, they often do not take the most effective route. People have been doing it for 20 years. They have been doing it wrong the whole time. Um, So Waze comes along and kind of opens up this new window through math and a larger sense of the network and kind of opens people's eyes to to some new way. And I think the same thing may theoretically happen with some of these – sites if done the right way so spotify's uh discover weekly section i open it up hey what what's this song by this band that i've I've never heard of i mean it's just i may be reaching here but yeah well uh, right and i think of the other side of the ways thing which is like all those people who are taking the inefficient route you know i kind of like that ways may may not know that like well they're doing it because there's a really pretty tree uh, on this road or like their ex-girlfriend's house happens to be over here and they get flooded with memories of, you know, high school when they drive in this direction or all those other sort of not efficient things that still add up to, you know, a, f- a full experience. Well, and you, you bring up a great point, which is that in the aggregate, you know, human behavior is very measurable and, and knowable. But once you start to break down the individual reasons, it really splinters. And this is something that, that came up with talking with the data analysts at Pandora. They once op- tried to set up a, a box on the site where instead of just giving it a thumb up or a thumb down, you could actually write why you liked or disliked a certain song. 
and the reasons were so varied and so oh i want to get my hands so sort of that. yeah you know crazy like this this was the the song my daughter played at her wedding this you know i used to hear this uh, on the way to school you know but there was nothing you could do with that sure. from a data point of view. But uh, so, yeah, like you say, you, you can analyze traffic flows from from above from a helicopter. But why each person is doing what they're doing on that road may be very different. So I guess there's a positive human message we can emerge from both of these. All right. Well, um, Tom Vanderbilt, thank you very much. This is a great book. I encourage everyone to go read it. But th- But thanks for coming in and chatting. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, we kind of left that traffic conversation hanging. I think I now want to go do a whole show on weird traffic data. But Tom Vanderbilt's latest book is You May Also Like Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. Go check it out. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Thanks to Jonathan Yales and Tony Chow for all your help. Lucina Malesio has now been our intern for a full week, and she's already doing amazing work. She had a big part in the new podcast mini-series we're doing on policy issues hosted by Farai Shadea. It's in the 538 Elections feed, so go check it out if you haven't heard it already. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. A few people asked this week about that song. Remember, there's a link to download it on our site. My name is Jody Abergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and leave us a rating and a review. Your review can just be as simple as podcasts are tight. We'll know what you mean. Thanks for listening. See you soon.